In God's providence, we have recently considered texts from the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus has been teaching his disciples and teaching us about the nature and life of his church. And given the fact that it has been uh, many years since our church uh, considered ordination of one of its members, this seemed an appropriate time to devote a few Sundays to think about our church as a whole and uh, consider our roles as members in the church. What is the nature of leadership in the church? What does it mean for a church to ordain members for particular ministries? We'll be considering questions like this that relate to your identity as the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Before we look at our text in Exodus, imagine that you came into this world to a place where you did not seem to belong. Supposedly it was your home, but it just didn't feel like home. Others seemed to fit in, to have their place, but not you. In fact, imagine that you were soon made aware that you did not fit in by those around you. You weren't the right size, you weren't the right shade of color, you weren't the right shape, you just weren't right. And you felt that. Life became a sad and frightening journey from place to place. No place welcoming you. In a beautiful world, you were the ugly one. As Christian Anderson gave us such a story, he imagined such a life. Perhaps you may be recalling that story now. We usually refer to it as one of his fairy tales. I hope that you've read it in its fullest form, not one in in one of the condensed forms. You can tell me what Anderson story I'm thinking of, what story by Hans Christian Anderson I was just describing of one who, who felt themselves to be ugly. Anybody know? Yes, the ugly duckling, the ugly duckling. It's a fairy tale of an orphan signet that suffers rejection, abuse, exile, through a painful winter in which he is almost frozen to death. Somehow he survives to spring, and he witnesses the arrival of three most beautiful birds he's ever seen in his life. Signet thinks to himself, If I fly out to those royal birds, they will peck me to death because I, who am so ugly, dare to approach them. But what does it matter? It is better to be killed by them than to be pecked by the ducks, beaten by the chickens, kicked by the girl who takes care of the barnyard and to suffer painfully all winter. Now, if you've read Anderson's story, you know that as the signet bows his head before those beautiful swans, he sees his own reflection in the water and makes a surprising discovery. What does he discover looking at his reflection? Well, he discovers that he indeed is a young, handsome swan himself. Anderson tells us that He felt positively glad for all the hardships and unhappiness that he had experienced, 
For now he could appreciate so much more the blessings and goodness that greeted him. He was very happy, but not at all proud, for a good heart is never proud. Anderson's tales uh, all have a moral. I hope you remember the moral of this one. Here it is. It does not matter if one is born in a barnyard, if one has been hatched from the egg of a swan. It doesn't matter if one is born in a barnyard, if one has been hatched from the egg of a swan. Our scripture today is about a people who rejected, abused, shunned in a land where they didn't belong. The elite of that land considered them ugly, enslaved them, tempted to exterminate them by killing their children. But it did not matter that they were born in the land of their enemies, for they were children chosen by the Lord God for his own. Let's turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, and I'm going to read the first eight verses of this chapter as our text. So listen for the Lord speaking to you through his word. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and Tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and said before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses repeated the words of the people to Yahweh. If you have been awakened, and stirred up by the conviction as a sinner before God who is holy and full of wrath against all sin, if you have then repented and cast yourself wholly by faith upon the grace and mercy of God revealed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the history recorded in our text is your history. This is your story. These are your people. You were enslaved by your sin, under the sentence of eternal death, in fact spiritually dead even though you were physically alive. You were helpless to save yourself from God's wrath, 
powerless to overcome your own inclination towards sin and squeezed into the mold of the world around you. But God, in his mercy, opened your eyes to your hopeless condition. You cried out to him in your distress, and he knew you as his own. This is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What is it that God knew? Certainly we can say that God knew the people of Israel as his own. He recognized them as his. The verb to know in scripture often conveys the idea of a personal, even intimate knowledge. Not just a head knowledge, but a very personal knowledge of one another. But Exodus 2 speaks not only of God knowing his chosen people, but also of God remembering. Did you catch that? He remembered his covenant. He remembered the promises that he had made hundreds of years before to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These promises, the New Testament tells us, were a foreshadowing of the covenant promises made by the triune God and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. The God of peace brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. God's knowing you as his children, as those who belong to him, is founded on the eternal covenant that he is guaranteed by his word. Don't miss that, guaranteed by his word. What is being conveyed here is that the promises of God to his people are so certain that the only way those promises could be broken would be if God would cease to be God. They are that much wrapped up in who he is. So this means that for all of you who are his covenant children, your eternal relationship with God in Christ is more certain than the pew that you're sitting in right now. It's more certain than your own physical body or anything else in material creation. It is more certain than anything in time and space. What God did for the people of Israel in our text then is emblematic of what he has done for you. He has defeated sin and death in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to glory. You have been born by him on eagle's wings from enslavement to sin to freedom in Christ. God has brought you to himself by the work of his spirit within you so that you can call him Father. Now let me pause to be very direct at this point. Do you have, in regards to these truths, what the Puritans called experiential 
theology. You know them not just with your head, but with your heart, your emotions, and your will. That's experiential theology. That's, that's a theology that is a part of your personal experience. It's absolutely necessary for salvation. The demons have theology, remember. They know God exists. They probably know more God, about God than most of us. They know that he is wrathful against sin. But that knowledge is not a saving knowledge. In fact, it's a condemning knowledge. It condemns them all the more to hell. The demons have no love for God and no desire to glorify him. I guess what I'm asking in different words is, do you love God? Has he given you a desire for himself that's, that's down in your gut? So that, so that these truths are not just academic facts in your head. Part of who you are. When you prayed for God's kingdom to come, his will to be done just a few minutes ago, did that just come out of your memory banks? Or did it come from your heart? Was it an expression of your own will and submission to his? Now, experimental theology is not about, experiential theology is not about your outward image of perfection. It's not about good works, okay? So don't get it confused with, with something that you do, something external that you generate by your own effort. Remember, we've seen in, in the Gospel of Matthew, G Jesus continually press those who seem to be very religious and very good on the outside, continue to press them because it didn't come from their hearts. Their wills had not been turned toward God. His Beatitudes provided us with a picture of godly living, but notice, notice that all the movement in the Beatitudes is outward. It begins with knowing yourself to be poor in spirit, mourning for your sin, humbling yourself before God those whose hearts truly inclined toward God know themselves as Paul knew himself in his letter, second letter to Timothy when he says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. So I might ask it this way, do you sense your deep need for God? Do you know yourself to be the worst sinner you know? Prophet Jeremiah told Judah that God's judgment was for the purpose of bringing them to repentance and to a genuine seeking after him. He prophesied the exile in Babylon and said, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. This is God speaking to his people. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, that is to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, the 
declares Yahweh. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a hope, future. Then, here's the result, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. If you're unsure of your heart, if these questions unsettle you a little bit, and you say, I'm not sure whether I truly love God, then believe Jeremiah's word here as a word to you. Put your faith not in your heart for God, but in the heart of God for sinners. Place your confidence not in your resolutions to change, but in the promises of God that he draws his people to himself. Seek God. If you doubt the sincerity of your seeking, pray that God would in his mercy awaken in you a hunger for him that would make him your chief delight. Now, if this all is true for you, if you can gratefully acknowledge that, yes, God has given you a desire and love for him that you know is not of your own manufacture, it's not something that you dreamed up because you didn't have it before he put it there in your heart, then rest and rejoice. God has brought you to himself for his glory, and his glory brings good for those who belong to him. And this brings us to verse 5 of our text. We're almost through the introduction. Now therefore, it reads, see that in the text? Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. That now, therefore, connects this thought with what has gone before it, doesn't it? So, on the basis of what God has done for you as his chosen people in verses 1 through 4, on that basis, here's how you respond. God, God has sovereignly saved you. Okay, you, you did not save yourself. He has borne you, as he said in that beautiful imagery on eagles' wings, to himself. He has freed you. He has given you life. And so you're responsible before him. That's conveyed by the if there in verse 5 that you see. Now, you didn't save yourself. You didn't establish God's covenant. He established it and gave it to you. He gave promises to you in Jesus Christ. So it doesn't depend upon you for its validity. So your response is summed up in two verbs here in verse 5, isn't it? I'm going to translate them here and guard. Now, most translations use the word obey for the first, for the first word, and, and there's nothing particularly wrong with that translation. It, it, it is meaning for us to, uh, 
to move in that direction, but literally it is the word hear. If you hear my voice, are you listening to God's word? Are you paying attention to it? Are you getting it into your mind so that it can percolate there and so you can turn it over in your mind and it can become a part of the way that you view the world and it can affect your emotions and it can, it can turn your will. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? you truly hear God's word, the gospel, it will become for you the sweetest music you have ever heard. It will be life to you. So hear it, and hearing it like that, as I've described, if you hear it that way, then it does result in your obedience. You, you delight as the psalmist says, to do God's will, because it is so pleasing to please him. Do you hear God's word? Secondly, do you guard it? The word in my text here is keep it. It's the same word that is used in Genesis when we are told that God put Adam into the garden to keep it to guard it. He was to treasure it. He was to protect it. And of course, we know that he did not. He defected to the enemy. He was a turncoat. Rather than guarding the garden, he betrayed it. You're to guard, guard the covenant promises that God has given to you. You're to guard his word. You're to consider it precious. It's to be a treasure to you. You're to prize the privilege of being subjects of the great king. Guard the honor of his name. Seek his kingdom. That is his rule in every aspect of your life. That's what it means then. Hear and guard the covenant as these people in our text were told to do. But before we get to their response, let's look at the final statement of God in, in this verse, in which God declares that these people, and that would be you as his ransomed ones, are his treasured possession among all peoples. And he goes on to say in verse 6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That term kingdom of priests, I want to be the focus of our thoughts now. This theme is picked up in the New Testament. We see it, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. As you, he's speaking to believers, now he's speaking to a church. 
As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says a few verses later in the same chapter, you that is, again, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We see this language in the book of Revelation as well. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Word of doxology, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And in Revelation 5.10, when the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb that has been slain, receives authority from the Father, is the response they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And one more passage from Revelation chapter 20. The blessing of those who are killed for their testimony to Jesus and the word of God and who are raised to life to reign with Christ. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now here's the application. All you who have been called out of darkness into the light of God, who have come to Christ as Lord and Savior, are a kingdom and priest to God. This teaching is essential to a right understanding of who you are as a church, a local manifestation of the church of God. There is no division in the church between priest and non-priest. All those who have been brought to repentance and faith in Christ are priests to serve God and one another. Title priest does not apply to me as pastor in a sense different than it applies to you. And this has important implications that we're going to explore in more detail in weeks to come. But let me just hit a few highlights here. Now this doctrine does not mean that there are no members of the church called to pastoral service. There are those who are called. But everyone is called to ministry. All members are gifted for spiritual ministry. Paul says this in his letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now there are varieties of gifts with the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Everyone here being all the church. Everyone in the local congregation. 
to each, that is, member of the local congregation or church, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And now he gives us some examples. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the, by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each individually as he wills. And there are no exceptions. For just as the body is one, he goes on to say, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though one, though many, I'm sorry, are one body, so it is with Christ. That is, so it is with his body, the church. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We'll explore that in more detail, but you, you understand the point. All are called to ministry. Some may be called specifically to pastoral ministry, but everyone is called to ministry. Now, this doctrine does not mean as well that one member or some members out of the church govern the body. same time, it doesn't mean that the church is a democracy either, where the majority of people's opinion rules. The church is a Christocracy. It's governed by Christ. And he does it not through his physical appearance here, not through his physical presence here, telling us, guiding us in what to do, but through his spirit who is given spiritual life and lives in every one of the members of the body. That undergirds our understanding of how the church governs itself, how it is governed in Christ. That's why we have language like this in Acts 15. The church comes together to consider a very serious question, namely whether or not Gentiles have to become Jews after they've been converted. And here's the way that, that the church's actions are described in response to that after, after deliberation. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now, if anyone could have dictated to the church, it would have been the apostles, right? If there's going to be any hierarchy, certainly it would be the apostles. We're told the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, and yet we don't see the apostles asserting authority here over the church, but rather functioning as part of the whole church, in fact, in making decisions. A few sentences later, here is, here is how the, the church words its message, the church in Jerusalem words its message to the church in Antioch. It has seemed good to us, it is the church, the congregation, having come to one accord 
There's our goal, of course, as church, to be at one in sensing the Lord's will, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no burden greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Notice that language there. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. In other words, the Holy Spirit operated within the church as a whole to bring them to be of one mind concerning this very important matter they were looking at. So Christ rules his church through you, all the members of his church, this local church. Now, if Christ rules his church through you, then it's apparent that you are called to holiness. Priests are to be holy and to present holy sacrifices. What does that mean for you? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, again, he's speaking to the church, the one in Rome at this point, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What's your response to these words from God to you as a church? To return to our Exodus text, Notice the response of the elders and the people of Israel. It's there in verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. That's the right response, isn't it? God speaks when he commands You obey. You commit yourself to his will. Of course, we know from subsequent history, sad history, tragic history, that many who were members of Israel proved unfaithful to the vow that they made here. You've heard the call of God to be holy priests, offering yourselves as holy living sacrifices being transformed in your thinking by God's word and seeking his will above all else. If you've responded by repentance and faith, you've said all that God says we will do. How do you live up to those words? To be the church, a kingdom of priests, to experience what Paul's talking about here in Romans 12, is not 
That does not mean that you depend on your own human strength. The Israelites that depended on their own good works, that, that counted on their own resolutions to turn over a new leaf, they all fell by the wayside. It's only those who turned and humbled themselves before God, remember that from Matthew 18, placing their faith in him alone who were able to persevere, and this is true for you as well. The only way you're going to be faithful to your vows as a member of the church is depending upon the spirit that he has given you to serve him and one another in a priestly way. Here's the assurance Paul gives us in Romans 8, and let's close with this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have been united with him by faith, in other words. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, how was that accomplished? Well, God accomplished it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, thereby condemning sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You understand that? There's the gospel right there. Christ came in human form to bear your sin so that your sin was condemned in him, satisfying the righteous requirement of the law. He goes on to describe us, those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He describes that later on. If Christ is in you, through his Spirit, although the body is dead because of sin, your physical body is dying even now, wasting away because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, if the same spirit that, that demonstrated that incredible power of resurrection lives in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He will enable you to live that life, pleasing before him. And so Paul can go on to say, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In Christ, in union with him, you have been adopted by Christ. And so the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This isn't an easy calling to be a member of the church. It will involve pain and suffering at times. It will involve bearing one another's burdens. It will involve 
serving one another in humble fashion. But it leads to glory, doesn't it? That's your calling as the church of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are a gracious and merciful God. You have every right to expect holiness from us. You are a holy God and you created us. We have absolutely no excuse not to reflect your glory. And yet, Lord, as we confessed earlier, we, we're sinners. And we're so grateful for the gospel that tells us that you have borne our sin and made us your children. We want, Lord, we want to be faithful to you. As the Israelites said, all that the Lord commands we will do, we, we want to say that ourselves. We want to live lives that are pleasing before you, lives that reflect your glory. And we know that in your divine will to do that actually is the very best thing for us. What brings you glory brings us as your people good. So we have every reason, Lord, to be faithful, but we know that we are utterly dependent upon you. So we cast ourselves upon you and pray that you would, even this week, help us to grow in reliance upon you. May we hear you speaking to us through your word. Uh, may we guard it in our lives. May we, may we shepherd one another as we encourage one another and as we minister to one another. And may we, may we be those who call others outside the church into faith as well and witness your wonderful work in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.